0: Our pastor David and Miss Pat, so we're so thankful uh, for them, and we're thankful for uh, Shannon and Barbara being willing to use their gifts for Christ. And it's what wonderful songs we can sing today about the resurrected Christ, Amen, Amen. We'll open up your Bibles if you would to First Corinthians chapter fifteen. First Corinthians chapter fifteen. <clears throat> So today we're going to look at what the Bible says about how the truths of the resurrection ought to shape our Christian walk. And the title of my message today is, Christ is risen. How then shall we live? Amen. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 stands as the single greatest treatise in the Bible on the resurrection. And we're going to look at those truths and how those truths should affect our Christian life. Walk Now, I have a difficult task before you today uh, to unfold the doctrine of the resurrection in one sermon it 's quite near impossible okay and there are many different aspects and many different ways to look at this doctrine so uh, it 's a very difficult task to try to <clears throat> uh, ex- uh, give an exposition of the entire doctrine of the resurrection. Um, So we're not going to be able to do that with the time allotted, but uh, today we're going to dive into one verse, and we're going to exposit this one verse, and what it's going to do, it's going to open up and catapult us into examining the great truths of the resurrection and how to respond accordingly. So we're going to begin with the end in mind by looking at the very last verse of the chapter, and that's verse 58. If you've never studied the chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, I encourage you to do so. Fifty-eight verses Paul gives to the doctrine of the resurrection. But we're going to start with the end in mind and look at verse 58, which says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much that we can have the opportunity, God, to open up your word and to see what you have to say to us. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us, God. We pray that you would use the word preached today to change us, God. Lord, may your redeeming work flow in here today, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray you would change us for your glory. Save those who are unregenerate. Conform us to the image of Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been said by many theologians throughout many ages that orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy, which means right believing leads to right behaving. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. What you think about in your mind. The beliefs that you hold near and dear in your heart will determine your emotions, how you feel, which will ultimately dictate how you act. You get that? What you think in your mind, your presuppositions, the beliefs that you have play an integral part of your Christian walk. Having the wrong beliefs, having the wrong presuppositions in any area, of theology will ultimately lead to wrong behavior. Christians, we must be willing to challenge our own presuppositions, seeking the Word of God and correcting areas of our life as needed. As the slogan of our church says, Semper Reformanda, always reforming. We need to always be seeking to reform all areas of our life Back to the Word of God. But it's, it starts with right believing before you get to right behaving. Today, on this Resurrection Sunday or Easter, it stands as the one day a year that has the highest attendance rates among churches. And unfortunately, most do not have a clue about the true implications of the resurrection of Christ. Both non believers and believers. As a result, I believe many Christians and many churches in today's ever increasing evil age have a retreat and a defeat mentality. Do we understand the depths of this doctrine? Do we truly understand the implications of a resurrected Christ? Today we'll seek to examine some of those great truths. And my prayer is that it will affect your heart in such a way and gives you fuel to your fire, so to speak, for you to press on, for you to pray on with confidence and hope in Christ, our victorious King. Now, to provide you with some context before we go into this passage, it's important in any passage that you look at the context and As uh, I interrupt an expositional uh, uh, preaching series in in Matthew, uh, we're diving into 1 Corinthians 15, so it would do us good to have just a bit of context on where we are, who's writing, who the audience is, and what the historical context is. I think it's very important when it comes to this chapter and this verse. So Paul's obviously writing to the church of Corinth. And he's writing during his second missionary journey around 50 A.D., and you can see this in the book of Acts in chapter 18. He ministered there for a year and a half, a year and six months, Acts 18 11. So that was around 50 A.D. <clears throat> now this epistle here, 1 Corinthians, was more than likely written during his third missionary journey, which was only within five years. It could have been as, as short as three years from when he founded the church, so somewhere around 55 A.D., give or take. And he wrote this epistle from Ephesus, as he says in uh, the end of the book, end of the epistle in chapter 16, verse 8. Any cursory reading of First and Second Corinthians, it's obvious that this church was a little messed up, wasn't it? Actually, it was a lot messed. It was very messed up, to say the least. Now, think about this. He He had just planted this church. He was there a year and a half ministering, the Apostle Paul. And then three to five years later, he's writing letter after letter, correcting them on all kind of stuff. We see that there were divisions and factions happening in the church. Sexual immorality was growing rampant and going unchecked. Christians were suing each other in pagan courts. They were making a mockery of the Lord's Supper. Their love for one another was waning, to say the least. This was not a poster child on how to operate a church. I mean, these were just some of the problems that the church of Corinth was having. And this wasn't his first letter correcting them. In chapter 5, verse 9, Paul references another letter that he had. Again, we only had three to five years. He's already writing letters to this church that's messed up. I find it interesting, one thing he did not say is, hey, you're so messed up, just stop having church. Just stop going to church. Just forget about it. This church is so messed up. Just have church at home, by yourself. You don't need to go to church. And that's just a side note to say that there are many Christians today that have that mentality, church is so messed up that I don't need any part of it, right? Don't you find it interesting that Paul never said, hey, y'all are so messed up, just stop having church. You know, this thing just crumbled, just stop, right? Uh, That's free, that's not even in my notes, but that's just a side note to say that no, Paul's correcting them and encouraging them, no, there actually is structure and order to a church, you guys have all these things messed up and I'm going to correct you here. And this wasn't the last that we see <clears throat> of his corrective letters. 2 Corinthians is another letter. And then, even in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he references another letter that he wrote to them. It was a sharp rebuke in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians. So, at least four letters that we know of. Why was this church so messed up? What was the root cause? Of this church, he calls them carnal. Yes, he calls them fleshly. Yes, uh, they're immature. Yes, they are. But why? Were they just inferior Christians? And the church at Thessalonica, who or or Philippi, who he called his joy and his crown, that he planted in the same journey. They they got it together. They're super Christians. They're better Christians. Were the Christians at Corinth just? Inferior, like the carnal Christians that that the term we've heard, right? You got super Christians that are holy. You got carnal Christians. I don't believe so. What we see at the church of Corinth was that they were being conformed by the culture around them. And they were not renewing their minds with the word of God. They were being conformed to the culture around them. Most of the issues that Paul addresses are stemmed from them adopting or holding on to some form of the pagan culture that they were in the midst of. See, the church of Corinth and the city of Corinth was a, a wicked and evil city, much like we live in today. There was, there was pagan worship, there was, there was uh, sexual immorality wrapped in their religious practices. It was very messed up, and, and the church of Corinth was allowing the culture to affect their practices and they wouldn't let go in many cases of those pagan practices that God brought them out of chapter 15 uh, this serves as Paul's last major correction to the church in this epistle and he spends a lot of time addressing this one issue on the resurrection the church of Corinth had some that were saying that there's no resurrection of the dead in verse 12 Now this too was influenced by the pagan Greek culture who they held to an early form of Gnosticism which among other things taught that the spirit was good but anything physical was inherently evil. Just matter in general was inherently evil. So the idea that a body, the matter of the body is evil while it's living. The idea that when that body dies it's dead and decaying that it would be resurrected to a new life that would even be more offensive to the pagan culture in Corinth this is why when Paul was in Athens in Acts chapter 17 which is another Grecian city just east of Corinth he talked about the resurrection and it says that they sneered or mocked him when they heard this The church was not living with the reality of a resurrected Christ. Now, they were saved because in order to be saved, you have to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. So they believed enough to be saved, but they didn't believe that there would be a physical resurrection when they would die. And they were allowing the culture to form their doctrine, and the church was not living in the reality of a resurrected Christ. Paul makes the argument that if there's no resurrection, that even Christ has not been raised. And if that's the case, he says, we are to be most pitied. He says that in verses 13 and 14. So again, right believing leads to right behaving. Could we fall into the same trap? Living as though Christ is not truly risen Perhaps we've been affected by the culture. And perhaps we need correcting in this area. Brothers and sisters, I believe when we truly understand the great truths of the resurrection and the resurrected Christ, we will be changed and we will live differently. Our minds will be affected. Our hearts will be moved, which ultimately will change our behavior. It will change our Christian life. Walk, we will have, we will no longer have a defeat and retreat mentality that so many Christians have today. So let's look at our text with that context in mind. The very last verse, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In this one little verse, friends, Paul takes the wonderful truths of the resurrection that he lays out in verses 1 through 57. He takes all of that and pours them into this one command to give fuel for their obedience, to give fuel for them to obey the commands that God tells them to obey. Before we look at these commands in verse 58, we need to look at the therefore. So as I've said before, when you see a therefore, you ask, what is the therefore? Therefore, thank you. What is the therefore, therefore? This is a key word to pay attention to because it connects what was just said to what is about to be said. The word in the Greek means accordingly, or therefore, or that being so, or consequently. In this case, Paul in verse 58 is saying, because of these great truths of the resurrection, now that you know what you ought to know about the resurrected Christ and the resurrected body of believers, now that you know all this, now that you know these great truths, because of all these great truths, friends, he says, be steadfast, immovable, so on and so forth. The right response is directly linked to the right doctrine. Friends, before you can be steadfast in the Lord, before you can be immovable or abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain, before you can do all that, friends, you got to let verses 1 through 58 pour into your heart. You got to let the truths of a resurrected king affect your heart and affect your mind. And then he adds this term, my beloved brethren. This tells us two things. One, that he's talking to believers. It's the term only used for believers. Number two, Paul knows where they are. He knows how messed up they are. And he just gives all these truths of the resurrection. And then Paul uses his pastoral love and care for the sheep. It's like he's bringing them in close and saying, therefore, my my beloved brethren, brothers and sisters." Because of these great truths, be steadfast, immovable. You can't do it on your own strength. It takes the right understanding of who our resurrected king is to be able to be steadfast, to be immovable. They had the right gospel belief, but they were allowing the culture to steal their peace, to waver In hope and confidence in the Lord. So, I want to look at this word therefore. I want to look at what all the word therefore entails. What are these great truths of the resurrection? Now, uh, many of you know this was my first week of being a full time here ministering at Grace Covenant, no longer uh, having a a full daytime job at the bank. So, it's very nice to study while it's daytime out and not night. Therefore, because of those great truths, put your seatbelt on because I have a lot to cover. And expect longer, more in depth sermons. I'm just kidding. Uh, We don't have the time to go through verses 1 through 57 in an expositional way, so we're really going to hit the highlights. I got five points that I want to look at, these are the five truths. Of the resurrection. And again, there are, there's more gold to dig out here. Uh, but we're going to cover five. The first two and the last two will come quick, and we're going to really uh, focus on the third. But the first truth is this the resurrection of Christ is a vital element of the gospel. The vital element of the gospel. This is basic Christianity 101. It is essential to the good news that we proclaim. Look at verse 1. He says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received in which you also stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So he says, this is the gospel which I delivered to you. What is the gospel? It starts at verse 3. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received. And here's the gospel summed up. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So right here in verse 3 and 4 we see a succinct summary of the gospel. Uh, Now there's a lot that goes into each of those elements, but the elements are clear that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again from the dead. This is good news, friends. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a vital element of the gospel. This is why throughout all of the New Testament church and the book of Acts, the emphasis that the apostles preached was that Jesus rose from the dead, that he was a risen Lord. He did not remain in the grave. And Paul even used scripture to prove that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and here's what we see in the text we see christ rose from the dead according to the scriptures you see paul would enter the sabbath uh enter the synagogue on the sabbath in these cities and he would preach christ as the risen savior from the scriptures paul saw the risen christ he didn't say hey let me tell you about my experience Let me tell you about this wonderful vision that God showed me, that Christ actually showed up and saved me. It actually says, if you look through the New Testament, that he would reason with the Jews from the scriptures that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose from the dead according to the word of God. And so that's a vital element of the gospel is that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, some may ask, Why is it really good news that Jesus rose from the dead? I mean, if if our sins were atoned for, what's the point of him rising from the dead? And that leads me to my next point, is that the resurrection of Christ proves that we have been forgiven of our sins. The resurrection of Christ proves that we have been forgiven of our sins. Look briefly with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 and verse 25. Paul just finishes his dissertation on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And here's what he says in verse 25. He says, He, talking about Christ, who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So Christ went to the cross because of our sins. He atoned on the cross for our sins. But this text says he was raised because of our justification. Your version might say, for our justification. Jesus had to die for our sins. But why does it say he was raised for our justification? To be justified is to be declared righteous. It's a righteousness that you and I need to have in order to be right with God and to go to heaven. But why was he raised from the dead for our justification, to be declared righteous? Where is the connection? How, how, are, how are those two connected? Well, when Christ rose from the dead, it proved that he was not just a man, right? When Christ rose from the dead, it proved that he was God himself. Jesus said that he would raise himself from the dead. Elsewhere, in books like Galatians, it says God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And then in the book of Romans, chapter 11, I believe, it says that the Holy Spirit, it says the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. So when God raised Jesus from the dead, when Jesus raised himself from the dead, it proved that he was not just a man. Now, why is that important? Why is, well, could a mere man atone for our sins? A sacrifice of a mere man would not be sufficient. It would not be a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Think about the sacrificial system, the animal sacrifices. They had to sacrifice over and over and over because it was not sufficient. It took someone, God himself, of infinite value, to be sacrificed, to be an atoning sacrifice sufficient enough to actually take away, to expiate your sins. And then you need the perfect righteousness of Christ to be imputed to you in order to be right with God. So back to our text, look at verses 16 and 17. It says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. The point is, friends, is that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it proved that your sins have been forgiven because it proves that the sacrifice was satisfactory to God the Father. And that should bring you hope. And as Paul says that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is worthless. We have faith in a man who's just a man who died for our sins but didn't really atone for them. The sacrifice would not have been sufficient. So if Christ has not been raised, then you are still dead in your sins. But friends, the good news is, is that Christ has been raised And your sins have been forgiven. And when Christ was raised from the dead, it was like God the Father putting his stamp of approval upon Christ Jesus, his work uh, and his life and his work and his death and his work and his resurrection. It's like God putting the stamp of approval for your atoning sacrifice. So we we are not lost in our sins. And the resurrection of Christ proves that our sins have been forgiven. Third, the resurrection of Christ proves that he rules and reigns now. The resurrection of Christ proves that he rules and reigns now. Look at verse 20 of chapter 15. This is where we're going to camp out for a minute. Chapter uh, 15, verse 20 says But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Look at verse 25. He, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he has accepted who put all things in subjection to him, meaning he's not going to subject God the Father. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. So when Christ was raised from the dead, as in Philippians chapter 2, when Christ became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, it says, For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above all names, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Look at verse 25. It says, For he must reign. That word reign is basileo. It's a very strong word. It literally means to exercise full control. It, It means to exercise the highest influence. It means to be king. And it means to exercise kingly power. And here... It's a verb and it's used in the present tense, friends. It means that Christ is reigning right now. It's happening right now. It's not far off in the future. Christ is reigning right now. And it's the same word used in Luke chapter one when Gabriel visits Mary. He says to Mary in verse 33 of Luke one, he says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Here back in our text, it says he must reign. That's key. He must reign. That word must means it is absolutely necessary that he must reign. And what does the verse say? So he's reigning now, and it says until. That's a continuation, brothers and sisters. It means Christ will continue to reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Has he put all his enemies under his feet yet? I don't think so. So he's still reigning until he puts all his enemies under his feet. It says the last being death. So again, brothers and sisters, this means that Christ is reigning now and he will continue to reign This is clear throughout the entire Bible. A very popular Christmas passage, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This is a prophecy about the coming Messiah, Jesus. And look what it says in verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, listen, pay attention, and to uphold it with justiceness, justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. This is a prophecy about Jesus coming and what does it say? It says he will establish his kingdom when? From then on. When's the then? When King Jesus comes, amen? When Jesus came and he was telling his disciples to proclaim the kingdom, what was the message? Do you remember? The kingdom of heaven is here. Repent. Remember? That's the message in the New Testament. The kingdom of heaven is here. Here, and Isaiah gives this prophecy that when the kingdom, when the Messiah comes, he will establish it. And from then on and forevermore will uphold it. And also, we peruse over the beginning of the verse where it says this Messiah will come. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Not only did he establish his kingdom, friends, when he came the first time, not only does he rule and reign now, but he is growing his kingdom right now. He is growing his kingdom and will continue to grow as the parable of the mustard seed, the smallest, he says, that grows and permeates the whole garden. That's the kingdom. He's comparing that to the kingdom and the whole world. And he will continue to grow his kingdom, brothers and sisters, until the whole world bows the knee to Christ. Until the whole world bows the knee to Christ. What is the great commission? We read it in our scripture reading. To make disciples of the what? Of the nations. We've got to work on this interactiveness. To make disciples of the nations and to teach them all that I have commanded. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought, would Jesus give this commission to the church knowing it would fail would he say go make disciples of all the nations but you know what the world's going to win satan's going to win and the kingdom's not going to grow and all of the old testament prophecies about christ ruling and reigning on the earth you know that won't happen maybe 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 far on maybe way away but no why would he give a commission knowing it would fail Habakkuk 2 verse 14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Do you believe that? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Friends, is that a reality in your life today? Are you living a life knowing that Christ is building his kingdom and that All of the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Do you live as though Christ has all authority and all power, both in heaven and on earth? Is that a reality in your life? Do you live as though Christ is king over all the earth? Or do you have just a hopeless mentality, a retreat and defeat mentality? You know, all hope is lost and and Satan seems to be winning who is king over all the earth? Who is king over all the earth? Jesus. Psalm 47 says, "O oh, clap your hands, all people, shout to God with a voice of joy, for the Lord most high is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues people under us and nations under our feet. God reigns over the nations. God sits" On his holy throne. Friends, all of this that Paul is saying right here, that he must reign, all of these Old Testament texts are coming to life with Paul. This is the Messiah. This is the one who's king over all the earth. This is the one who rules over the nations. Psalm twenty two, twenty-eight. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. Psalm seventy two eight. May he also rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the no-mans of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. This is Psalm 72, verse 9. Let his enemies lick the dust. Then in verse 11, it says, And let all kings bow down before him, all nations serve him. So again, friends, who is king over all the earth? Christ, why don't we live that way? Why don't we live like Christ is ruling, reigning, that he has the victory and that he will conquer the nations with the gospel? I think it's because we've been negatively influenced over the years with bad theology. Because some would say, well, Mark, isn't Satan ruling over all the earth? What about texts like John 14:30 and 12:31 where Jesus calls Satan the ruler of the earth or prince of the earth? I mean isn't he ruling over the earth now? What about Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air? You ever heard that? Right? He's over the whole earth, right? God may be king ultimately. You ever heard this, but God has sort of relinquished power over all the earth to Satan until a time where he comes to take back that power. Or what about Paul says that Satan is the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. So what are we to make of this? God's king over all the earth, but then he's, Satan's referred to the, the God of the world, the prince of this age You see, Mark, God may be king and ruler, but he's given up the earth and everything in it to Satan for a season. So the world's going to get worse, and the best we can hope for is, you know, to save a few souls here and there. But don't expect God's kingdom to grow to him to uphold his kingdom with justice and righteousness, as it says in Isaiah. Don't expect that. I believe, again, I believe we've been negatively influenced over the last 100 years with bad theology that basically puts Christ away for a season and lets Satan rule the whole world. So, but what do we make of these texts? And I want to dive into this before uh, because it's important to understand what, what, uh, what these writers mean by prince of this world and prince of the power of the air. So to understand this, we have to understand how the, world, the word world is used in these passages. We have to understand that the word world is used in different ways, in different contexts, by different authors, to make different points. Last week when Pastor Swan preached in James 4.4, 4, remember that text? It says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward, towards God? So what's the world mean here? Does it mean mountains, the grass? Is he saying don't be friends with the physical planet Earth? No, we know in this context he's using it to say don't be friends with the evil world systems, right? Pastor Swan did a great job of of expositing that text. So it's not a matter of being a friend with a physical matter of the Earth, but with the perverse system in the world. So in this text, love for the world is the antithesis for love for God, or the opposite of love for God. He's not talking about the physical world, but everything that represents sin, perversion, and rebellion against God. That's what James is saying. Don't be friends with that world system. Or 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. This is a great chapter on repentance, and Paul says, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, is Paul meaning the sorrow of the physical whole planet Earth? No, what's the, sor- what's the world mean in this passage? Sorrow of the ungodly and rebellious system in the world. That's what he's saying. That's the... The word world, when Paul uses, that's what he's referring to, the rebellious and ungodly system in the world. The sorrow of that type leads to death because we know there's no godly sorrow in that. There's only this fleshly sorrow that works to de- works death. First John 5, 19 says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There you have it, Mark. See, the whole world lies in the power of Satan. Therefore, Satan rules and reigns over the earth. Well, friends, what does it say right before? It says we know that we are what? We are of God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Do you see how those who are of God, us in Christ, we stand in contrast to those who lie in the power of the evil one? So in this verse, the world is used to identify all that stands against God. Rebellion, debauchery, unrighteousness, all of that. That's what he's saying. We are of God, but the whole world, all of, all of that stands for unholiness. All that stands for rebellion against God. All of that lies in the power of the evil one. So is it a surprise that the Bible says that Satan is the god of this world? Is it a surprise to us that he's a prince of the world? He's the god of this age? Is it a surprise to say that Satan has all those in his domain under his power? It does not mean that he rules over the entire planet Earth, friends. He is simply the leader and the ruler of all unbelievers. He's the leader and the ruler of all unbelievers. It does not mean that he rules over the entire planet Earth. He is the leader of everything that stands against God. He is the Lord of all those who are in rebellion against God and his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, friends, I want to emphasize this truth because, again, I believe we've been affected by bad theology, which would lead us to believe that Satan rules over all of the affairs and all of the ordering of the planet Earth. Now, I, don't, I say that to say that it doesn't mean that Satan's not active. You know, even Peter says Satan prowls around like a roaring lion. Satan is very active, but, friends, he is not the ruler of this whole world. He is the leader of the godless age of the godless and rebellious world look at galatians 1 we're going to emphasize this some more Uh, galatians 1 verse 3 says grace to you and peace from god our father the lord jesus christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God and our Father. So he gave himself so that he rescued us. Before you came to Christ, your father, your leader was Satan. You were part of the godless age. You were part of the godless, uh, rebellious world. And God saved you, and it says he rescued you from that present evil age. Colossians one thirteen. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So when you were an unbeliever, you were in this domain of darkness, and you were being led by your sin, yes, and by Satan himself, because he is the prince of darkness, but he transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son. And Ephesians 2. Verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to what? The course of this world. There's that word world again. Before you came to Christ, you walked according to the course of this world, according to what? The prince of the power of the air. There's that prince of the air, right? Those who are not in Christ are walking according to this prince, of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedient. The key words is you formally walked. When you came to Christ, you got called out of that darkness, out of the kingdom of Satan, into the kingdom of his beloved son. So friends, I hope that helps you to see that the world that Satan is the God of is not the entire physical planet Earth, but it means that He is the God of the ethical system of all that is against God the Father. He's the leader of the unholy and the rebellious. And what did Jesus come to do? First John three eight it says He came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy. The works of the devil. So, did Jesus fail? Did He destroy the works of the devil or not? In Luke eleven verse twenty one and twenty two, Jesus, after being uh, after being indicted for uh, casting out demons by demons, you remember that account. He said he cast out demons by Beelzebub. What Jesus' response was? What he said. In order to steal a man's plunder, he first has to go in and bind the strong man and then can go steal his plunder. That was an analogy for him coming to destroy the works of the devil, to bind Satan, if you will, so that he can no longer deceive God's people so the gospel would go forth and the kingdom of heaven would increase on earth. Christ came to bind Satan, as I mentioned, So again, Satan is active, yes, but he is not the ruler of all of the affairs of the entire world. Jesus gave this great commission and I believe that it would be a success. Friends, we gotta get this truth deep into our soul. This truth that Jesus is reigning and ruling now, that he has the authority not just in heaven but on earth. He has the authority at all of the pagan, God-hating systems in our world, he has all authority over them as well. He hasn't relinquished any of it. Friends, we have to get that truth deep in our soul. It has to it has to affect us to the point that we stop with the retreat and defeat mentality and we stop being being cowards and being courageous and moving forward to advance the kingdom of heaven, knowing that Jesus is ruling and reigning. Because brothers and sisters, when this truth affects your very soul, it will change your life. It will change your Christian walk. It will change every conversation you have with friends, unbelieving friends, unbelieving family, strangers, neighbors. It will change your life. Fathers, raise your kids as if Christ does have all the authority in heaven and on earth. Mom, same for you. School and train your kids not to have a defeat mentality, a retreat mentality, but train them to win the spiritual battle that we're facing in this secular humanistic world. Train them how to be launched into the world and to be able to refute these godless ideologies knowing that we have the confidence of Christ who is reigning and ruling, who has given us the tools and given us the word of God to bring to bear on this culture to see the kingdom of God flourish here on earth. We have such a weak Christian church with no backbone. I mean, it's like a wet noodle. I mean, it absolutely makes me sick to see much of this Christian church not engage this culture and to see this Culture and the the kingdom of darkness grow, and I believe that God is allowing it. I believe that God is allowing this evil age, so to speak, to grow, giving us godless, God-hating rulers as judgment upon not just the world, but the church. Long are the days where Christians can just sit in their church sit in their homes and oh you know what the culture that's that's satan's domain not going to deal with it not going to bring the word of god to bear upon the culture because satan is the ruler i'm just going to do my church thing friends that's happened the last hundred years with the church the church has gotten silent and look at what's happened i don't know about you but i think love for neighbor is love for my children and love seeing them and their grandchildren grow up in a country, in a world where the gospel will flourish. I mean, God can grow a church in horrendous situations like communist China as he does. But friends, do you really want your children to live in a country where they're in an underground church like that? I mean, do you really want that? Or do you want to see your kids in a, in a place where the gospel is flourishing? Where people are being saved, where the kings and queens, the leaders of nations, are bowing the knee to Christ. Would you like to see that? Or would you like to see your grandchildren under, under the rod of tyranny and having to meet in their basements and not having Bibles? Can God flourish the church in that situation? Yes. But friends, I love my children enough and I love my posterity enough and I love the word of God enough and I believe it enough to know that that's not what God's doing. God is growing his church and he will continue to grow his church. He says that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now people say, Mark, you can't be obvious. You cannot be realistic. Mark, you don't see all the evil happening in the world. You're telling me that God's, kingdom is going to continue to grow, that he's going to continue to rule and reign. Well, friends, if you look at the last 2,000 years, are there a little bit more Christians in the world than there were 2,000 years ago? Absolutely there is. And Christ will continue to grow as he promised in his word as he is ruling and reigning. So we got to get more confident in our King Jesus. We have to engage The culture with King Jesus and not retreat. We can't abandon the very objective standard of truth in the Word and try to go make the culture better by our own pragmatic ways, pragmatic thinking, uh, conservatism, all of that. Without the objective standard of truth, we need to hold up the banner that Christ says, Thus saith the Lord. We can't abandon the standard of truth. We have to act like Christ actually does have the authority, that he actually is building his church, and that he is actually, as the text says, reigning until he subdues all his enemies under his feet. Moving on, number four. These last two will come quick. Well, the resurrection of Christ proves that we too will be resurrected. The resurrection of Christ proves that we too will be resurrected. Again, this is another basic truth of Christianity. But, friends, do we really live in that reality? Paul makes it very clu- clear throughout the entire chapter that if Christ was raised from the dead, he calls Christ the firstfruits. That if Christ be raised from the dead, you and I, one day, although we die and our bodies go into the ground, our bodies will be raised to life. God in all his power will take all those dust particles, all of wherever your body lays, he will take all of that and he will resurrect it and you will have a glorified body as as Paul describes in the chapter, a heavenly body. This truth, friends, this truth that once we die, We go to be with the Lord, but one day he will resurrect our bodies and we will be resurrected to everlasting life. This truth needs to permeate our hearts as well to give us hope. Even though we do see setbacks, we do see evil in our age, we need to live as though one day we will be resurrected to life and we will be with our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? And number five, the resurrection of Christ proves Christ's victory over death. Proves Christ's victory over death. Look at how Paul ends this chapter, starting at verse 50. He says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment... In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ returns in judgment, our perishable bodies will be raised, it says, imperishable. Our mortal bodies will be raised immortal, Paul gives this quote in verse 54 and 55 from Isaiah 25, 8 and Hosea 13, 14. These great truths that when he comes, death, the final death, is swallowed up in victory and there is no more sting. It's almost, in verse 55, it's almost as if death is being taunted now. Where is your victory, death? Where is your sting? And then look at how he, how he ends the verse 56 and 57, "The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Powerful. Because of sin, we have death. That's the sting. And the power of the sin is God's law. When we break God's law, sin abounds. But verse 57, but thanks be to God. Not only did Christ gain victory over death, Scripture says, look at what it says in verse 57, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ says gave us the victory because Christ was victorious over death. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have hope. We have hope. Confidence that we have victory over death. That's one day we too will be raised to life. Now let's look at verse 58. Finally, we made it. Verse 58. Now this is how I'll conclude the message. Look at verse 58. Again, the therefore, because of these great truths, because we have victory over death, because we know that we will be living with a resurrected Christ because we know that Christ rules and reigns now. Paul says, because of all this, be steadfast. Now that word is a verb. Be means to become. It's in the imperative. Here's a command that Paul's giving. And by implication, brothers and sisters, God has given you this command. But he's given you this command with the fuel of the resurrection of Christ and our future resurrection. Amen? He says, be steadfast. That's an imperative. He's commanding them. That word steadfast means to be immovable or to be settled. It comes from a derivative of to sit. Like someone sits, they're settled. They're not moving. And it says To be steadfast and immovable. And this is the only time this word's used in the New Testament. It literally means that something is there and it will not be moved from its place. Paul is saying, because of these great truths, friends, don't waver, don't toss to and fro, don't fret about all the stuff you see going on. Don't let all the stuff that's happening in your life get you all stressed out and anxious and worried and wondering what God's going to do. Be steadfast, immovable. Don't be swayed by what you see, but be steadfast in knowing the truths of our risen Savior. And then he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, I thought this was So wonderful of a a phrase here because abound means to overflow in abundance. He's saying always, that's perpetual, abounding to be overflowing in what? In the work of the Lord. Because of these great truths, these great truths should fuel our passion to do and always be about our Father's business. It says... Knowing, as you're doing this, knowing that your toil, your hard work is not in vain in the Lord. Notice the key word is work. Not enough Christians are doing the right type of work in the Lord. Friends, we all have work to do in the Lord and whatever vocation and whatever God has placed you in your context of your life, you are to be doing work for the Lord, Okay, when you see work of the Lord it doesn't only mean things we think it means, like going out and evangelizing, although we're called to do that but brothers and sisters, whatever vocation God has given you and you are to do the work of the Lord in that vocation so in your job, you are to do the work of the Lord by doing a honest work by being a good witness for Christ by being the most ethical, and hardworking person at your job. Moms, when you're doing your work at home, you're to do your work for the Lord. You're to raise your children and homeschool them, equip them. You're to uh, uh, saturate them with Scripture and saturate them with uh, apologetics, and that's your work in the Lord. All that what we do and all the commands of Scripture when we're doing the work of the ministry and we're to go out and make disciples of all men, starting in our home. We are to go out and evangelize. We are to go out and do the things that God has called us to do. And not many Christians are doing that. We just have this defeat, retreat mentality. But if we only knew what Christ is doing and will do with his kingdom, it would give us the confidence. It would give us the confidence to do the work in the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. The key word there in the Lord. When you're toiling in your own strength, when you're working and you've you've set aside the means of grace, you're not reading the word, you're not praying the word, you're not meditating upon the word, you're just going through the motions at church when you do go to church, when you're doing all those things and you go out and you try to do your work in the Lord, that's not in the Lord. That's in your own pragmatic and your own strength. Your toil will not be in vain. The things that we're doing for the Lord, we must understand. If they're in the Lord, they're not in vain. God will be with you. So friends, I want to end by asking you, is the risen Christ a reality in your life? Are you walking as though Christ actually rose from the grave? Are you walking your Christian walk actually as he lives as king and Lord over all the earth? Or do you get afraid when you go into certain situations because you're not sure um, about how someone's going to react to you as a Christian or, or how they're going to react to you when you try to tell them about Christ Christ? Or it's a, it seems like it's a hostile environment, oh, a bunch of unbelievers. But friends, are you living as though Christ actually has the authority over that place, has the authority over that person? It will change the way you think. Are you living as though Christ is even Lord of your life? I don't doubt that some of you today may be even living as, as Jesus isn't even Lord of your life. Or anyone listening, you might be living as yourself, as Lord of your life. Yourself might be king. You don't listen to the commands of God. You listen to the commands of your mind. You do what you please. So before you can even live in the reality that Christ is king over all the earth, you need to ask yourself, is Christ even Lord of my life? Do I hear the commands of God and think, eh, I'm okay. We need to do some examination, both unbelievers and believers. If you are here today, you're listening, and, and Lord Christ is not Lord of your life. Christ doesn't have all the reign to do whatever it is that he tells you to do. Whatever command he gives, you might fail at it, but by all means, you're going to seek to obey exactly what Jesus Christ has said, if that's not not you, repent. Come to Christ and live because if you're living in that manner that Jesus doesn't have say over my life, that whatever he says, I can take it or leave it, friends, there's more than likely a chance that you're not even saved. And if you are saved, but you haven't been living living in the reality of Christ as our risen Savior, you've let the fear of man as the proverb says, is a snare. You've let it be a snare to your walk. You've had more fear of man than fear of God. Repent. Ask God to change your heart so that you would walk in the reality of our risen Savior, that you would walk with Christ's authority in heaven, knowing that He has it all, that you have the confidence to advance the kingdom of God in the context that God Has given you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Lord, we thank you that you lived a life, you died a death, you were raised to life, all, Father, for God's glory and for our salvation. Lord, help us to live in the reality that you actually are a risen Savior, that you actually rose from the dead and now you sit in heaven upon your throne you rule and reign over all the earth forgive us god forgive me father for having more fear of man than fear of our king jesus christ help us god to walk in the reality of a risen savior help us lord to have confidence lord not in ourselves but confidence in you, Lord, that you will bless our efforts as we do it by fearing you. Lord, and I pray if there's any here or listening, God, that aren't even acting as if you're the Lord of their life, that you would convict their hearts. Lord, that you would bring them to repentance, that they would put all their faith and trust in you. So, Father, that they too would be born again and live, Lord, as you Rule and reign over their life. God, rule and reign over our lives, we pray, God. Teach us, God. Conform us to the image of Christ. We thank you, Lord, and, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.